0: I want to tell you two stories tonight, two women. One from the first century, one from the end of the 20th century. We'll spend most of our time in the first century. We'll do that by reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, the first 26 verses. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew The woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and is now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I Who speak to you, am he. When I was reading along with you the portion of the contemporary testimony that speaks of sin, I realized that that's really what I was trying to say in the sermon. And I didn't choose that. Because what the sermon is about tonight is the process of taking someone who is indifferent to the issue of sin and helping that person come to the point of realizing the importance of sin and the need of a Savior. We've been hearing an awful lot the last few months about the latest analysis of Americans and religious views, and that more and more Americans are checking the none of the above box when it comes to what is your religion. And we're told that about one-third of young adults now say, I am a nun, I am no religion. Which, among other things, I think is saying, I do not see sin as a big issue in my life, I do not see any religion addressing me in any kind of need that I have. I see no need to be a part of anything that looks like an organized religion. Tonight, I want you to think with me again about a woman at a well. A woman that, in the early part of the story, is indifferent, at least pretends that she has no needs, and gradually becomes aware of her needs as we go through the story. There was a woman of Samaria who came to draw water. Now the background is mentioned at the very beginning of the chapter. It's not very far into the public ministry of Jesus, a lot earlier than what we were looking at this morning. And. It, he was beginning to get a reputation as being quite a person like John the Baptist, drawing more disciples than John did. And there was something about that that he did not like, and he said, it's time to leave Jerusalem and go north one more time. And if you remember the geography of that land, normally a Jewish person would go east across the Jordan River, up the other side, bypass Samaria altogether, and then cross the Jordan back to the west into the area of Galilee, up near his hometown. For some reason, not stated, Jesus said, on this occasion, we're not going to take the long route. We're going to take the shortcut. We're going to head right up through Samaria on this journey. Why would they not do that? Because they would be in touch with Samaritans who at best were more or less Jewish. Enough less that Jewish people wanted nothing to do with them, and Samaritans had learned that for over a long period of time, and therefore they wanted nothing to do with Jewish people either. Both sides did not care for the other. Periodically, violence would break out. But Jesus goes anyway, and it's time to eat, apparently. This is most likely a noon story, and the disciples go into town looking for food, and they leave Jesus out in the country, and here he finds himself at a well when a woman comes to get water. Some have suggested the reason that she comes at noon, which would not be the normal time, was because the Samaritans wanted nothing to do with her either, and so she had to come out on her own, alone. What I want you to see is that at the beginning of the story, there's really no sense of need. There's no need expressed on her part. And it's a fascinating conversation that Jesus begins to have with her. He opens it. Please get me something to drink. <laughs> That's simple enough. He's thinking of water, so he starts the conversation about water. But it, just that simple question really gets her attention because he's not supposed to talk to a Samaritan, and he's not supposed to talk to a woman, and she's both, what is he doing on this occasion? And so you get this brief conversation at the beginning of chapter 4. Will you give me a drink? How can you ask me for a drink, she says. And Jesus ignores her question. Helps me understand, I don't have to answer every question that's given to me. He didn't answer this one. He just paid no attention to it. But he did respond to increase. Her curiosity, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Living water, as opposed to dead water? What kinds of water are there? Well, for me, the answer goes back to my Iowa farm where I grew up. And just outside the back door of our house, there was a cistern where we kept water for purposes, whatever purpose we needed it for. But it wasn't water that I would call living water. It just sat there in the cistern. At another place on the farm, we had a spring. Water was always bubbling up in that spring. Water in that occasion, that place was living water. Contrasted to water that just sat in a cistern. Jesus is playing with something like that and saying there's another kind of water. If you just knew, you would ask about that living water. Somehow water that continually reproduces itself and satisfies. Now, You and I have the advantage that we know something of the Scripture, and so we can sort of put this passage up against a whole lot of other passages. For example, if we had read Psalm 1 tonight, the picture of the righteous person is the one who is like a tree whose roots go deep at the side of the water so that they can always draw nourishment. Or if we had read through the book of Ezekiel, Get to chapter 47. There's a river described as flowing through the temple, and everything shall live where the river comes, the source of life. Or the very end of the book of Revelation, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And the Bible ends with the Spirit and the water. And the invitation to drink freely. And Jesus is giving her that kind of invitation. Ask me, and I'll give you living water. And she says, What? She doesn't get it. At verse 11, you don't, you, you don't even have something to reach down in the water we have. You have nothing to draw with. The well is deep, you don't have a bucket course, not literally a bucket, but a, uh, an animal skin sort of folded up with three uh, sticks at the top, holding it together that you could let down and draw up. You don't even have that, Jesus. How can you possibly give living water? And what's wrong with this water anyway, here at verse 12? And once again, he ignores her question. He doesn't feel that he has to answer every question that is given to him. He goes on to talk more about the water in verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water from this well is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him, him, will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And he tantalizes her some more with a special kind of water, different and better than she has ever had. I don't know if she, no, she wouldn't have known Isaiah. She would never have read Isaiah 12, which says, Therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. Jesus knew that passage. She didn't. She wouldn't have known Isaiah 44. God says, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone, that thirst come to the waters. She wouldn't have known any of those things. But Jesus is offering her a never ending supply of water that her needs might always be met. Does she get it? Not much. Not much, but perhaps a little. Sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. That's the first step. Jesus is taking one of the nuns, one of the, I don't have a need for organized religion, I don't have anything going on in my life where I really need help, and he's helping her see that indeed she does. There is something he's offering. She probably doesn't understand it yet, but it's beginning to create a desire in her life. The next paragraph is also going to impress her with her need, but this time he's going to go deeper. He's going to address her sin, not just a vague need that water might satisfy but now he's going to help her see that she has a sin that needs to be dealt with as well. At verse 16, he says, Go, call your husband, and come back. I don't have a husband. That's true. You've had five husbands. You have a man now who's not your husband. You've spoken truth. hmm, we've moved a step forward, haven't we? It's no longer water. Now he's getting into her life in a pretty personal way. Sin is coming to light. But even here, our Lord treats her very carefully, very diplomatically. He doesn't shout and say, you adulteress, you're headed for hell. That's not the way he treats her at all. He just helps her see that she really does have a need. She is a Samaritan. The Samaritans trusted the first five books of the Bible, including the book of Leviticus, where Leviticus 20 says, He who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. Somebody said, no one values the doctor until he feels the disease. That's what's going on. Jesus is helping her to feel the disease that she might begin to look for the doctor. And as he does so, she realizes a bit more at verse 19, I can see that you are a prophet. Mm. That too fits from those first five books of the Bible. Moses, of course, was the great spokesman in those early books. But Moses in Deuteronomy 18 says, The Lord your God will raise up to you a prophet from the midst of you, like unto me. Unto him shall you take heed. And those of us who've looked back to that Deuteronomy passage say, Clearly, Moses was anticipated a much greater prophet. That much greater prophet is Jesus She's starting down the right path now. She is seeing that Jesus is not an ordinary person in his conversation with her. Well, he began to help her see a need through her thirst. He began to help her see her need through an awareness of her sin. And now he's going to talk to her about worship to reinforce this need that she has. At verse 20, for the next five verses. At verse 20, she seems to be changing the subject, doesn't she? She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now this time, Jesus does not ignore her question. This time he continues with the topic that she has chosen. Suddenly she's interested in the difference between Jews and Samaritans. She didn't care about that before. But now there's something in her that says, I need to know what's right here. I need to have, you know how I'm supposed to worship. I, I need something outside myself. She's moving along as he talks to her. Now, the city of Jerusalem is not mentioned in her Bible in those first five books, but Gerizim is. Gerizim is the place when the Jewish people came back with Nehemiah from exile, they built a temple. Gerizim, well, a temple was destroyed there in 150, 130 B.C. Gerizim to those folks was still a sacred place, and if you were to talk to Samaritans in those days, they, they probably would have talked to you about Gerizim as a place where Adam was, and Noah was, and Isaac was sacrificed there, and Uh, Jacob's ladder was there. In their minds, everything important had happened at that place called Gerizim. But you Jews say down in Jerusalem, one of us has to be wrong. We can't both be right. And how does Jesus respond with this? At verse 21, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Oh, the place has been important in the past, but the place is losing significance because something else is taking place that's more important. And then he specifically and directly says, but you're wrong. Samaritans are wrong. Verse 22. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. So he has, he started out there with oh such sensitivity with her, but as he develops that need within her and she becomes more aware, he can get more direct with her as he speaks. And he helps her to see. It's the Jews who are the covenant people. It's the Jews who are the people of God. And that she, as one of the Samaritans, the Samaritans are only a pure imitation of God's people. And then he gets to the heart of it. What is it really to worship? At verse 23, a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they're the kind of worshipers that God seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not going to be enough anymore to have some kind of an outward sacrificial system. That won't do. There is someone who is truth. Now, we have the advantage of reading the Gospel of John, and in the very first chapter of the Gospel, We're told the law was given by Moses, that's the Old Testament way, but grace and truth come by Jesus. And it's this one who is grace and truth who's speaking to this woman and leading her toward truth and teaching her that God is spirit. And as spirit, he's not limited to one place, but he does desire Worship which is spiritual and truthful. And she really needs to learn to worship God acceptably and not as the Samaritans do. Well, we're getting close to the heart of this now because he's about to reveal himself as the answer to her need. He started by helping her see a need. He began to develop that. He kept working in it as she got more and more engrossed and tantalized by whatever he had to see. And now he's going to tell her what is at the heart of it in verse 25. She says, I know that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus says, I who speak to you, am he. That's the most clear he's been with anybody. He hasn't said it that directly yet in his public ministry. Jewish people would not have understood if he had said it to them because they're looking for a political leader. But out here in the country with this one person, he can say it so very clearly. And what we're doing is watching her move from being one of the nuns from being one who is indifferent to one who is ready to worship. Now that's the path that most Americans need to travel as well. The Samaritan woman, way out there, moves closer and closer to Jesus, the Messiah. Well, I started by telling you, I was going to tell you the story of two women that's the first one. Now I'm ready to tell you the story of the second woman. I have to set this story up. I have to set the story up by telling you that back at about the beginning of the 60s, when I was a seminary student, there was a man in my life who was a very powerful mentor. His name was Ken Smith. And for a number of years he was by far the most spir- most significant spiritual influence in my life. I saw him just a few months ago. I think he is now 84 years old and he's going strong. And he seems to be saying the same things he was telling me more than 50 years ago and still influencing people. The reason i have to mention Ken is he shows up in the story I'm about to tell you. The story I'm gonna tell you is a story of Rosaria. And I have never met Rosaria. I first heard about her sometime this last year. If you are a subscriber to the magazine, Christianity Today, which comes out of DuPage County, and which I'm convinced is the most influential magazine in America for Christians, the current issue tells the story of Rosaria gives her testimony. And three days ago, on Thursday, CT posted on their website her story. I found it about an hour before I came tonight, and I realized, okay, that other woman is 2,000 years back. A little hard for us to identify with her. Rosaria is right now. Same story, same story. Here's the way she starts out. She calls it my train wreck conversion. As a leftist lesbian professor, I despised Christians. Then I somehow became one. Now, I don't know what was going on her life much before the year 1997, but by 1997, she was a professor at Syracuse University She was openly practicing as a lesbian. She was a professor of women's studies. She was on the track to becoming a tenured radical. She says, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion, fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin. I strove to stand with the disempowered. Now, 1997, you may remember, was about the time that Promise Keepers was really strong, and she had an opinion about Promise Keepers, so she wrote an article in the local paper in Syracuse, New York, I'm sure, to straighten out people about what Promise Keepers was all about. After my 10-year book was published, I used my post to advance the understandable allegiances of a leftist lesbian professor. My life was happy, meaningful, and full, just like the Samaritan woman. What problem? My partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS activism, children's health and literacy, golden retriever rescue, our Unitarian Universalist church, to name a few. And she then wrote an article. She was interested in researching the religious right, which was very prominent at that point in history. She wanted to research their politics of hatreds against queers like me. And she realized to do so, she was gonna have to read the Bible. So, the article published and a whole lot of people responded to her articles. I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail, one for fan mail. But one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you're right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond to it, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the recycling bin and put it back on my desk, where it stared at me for a week confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded a response. As a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical materialist worldview. But Christianity is a supernatural worldview. Ken's letter punctured the integrity of my research project without him knowing it. I'll skip a paragraph and read one more paragraph to you. Something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. They did book excha- we did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sins in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Foy did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. And she goes on and describes What else happened? I think it was two years later. She said she got up on a Sunday morning and walked into their church. Well, it's a long story. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there, Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved. And she goes on as she describes what it took for her life to change. Well, where is she today? Here's what it says at the end. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield is the author of the book The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She lives with her family in Durham, North Carolina, where her husband pastors the First Reformed Presbyterian Church of Durham. 2,000 years apart, both treated with respect, both loved, both helped to see their sin, both pointed to the Savior. Both of them we will meet in heaven.